Adisa, you grew up in West Oakland, California? Yes, yeah, I grew up in West Oakland. I grew up, uh, grew up in 70s, in the 70s. Well, I came of age in the 70s in uh, West Oakland, California. Uh, my mother lived there. My father lived in Vallejo, California, which is about 30 minute drive away. And uh, um, yeah, they, they split up when I was about five years old. And, but my father was always present in my life. He would come see us every weekend or pick us up every weekend. So I almost had two homes growing up. I'd be like living in Vallejo on the weekends and I'd be living with my mother during the weekday. And uh, it was a very supportive and nurturing environment. I have uh, one brother and two sisters. Did you go to Marine World? Uh, yeah, in Vallejo, you <laughs> yeah. know about it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, when I grew uh -huh. up in Vallejo, there was no Marine World. Yeah, there wasn't one at that time. It was just like, uh, it was like just a back um, woody area w with a pond, you know, it was Dan Mini Park is what it was called, right? And so we would go there as kids and we'd fish and we would play. We had a tree house there. It was like great. It was just like this expansive land. And then um, when I got to high school, they built Marine World. And then we'd wake up in the morning, we'd hear dolphins <laughs> and we'd hear, you know, the seagulls and all that stuff. Because I lived literally um, maybe about five minutes from Oh, Marine wow. World. That mm -hmm. close. Okay. Yeah. Well, you said you had supported parents, even though you were you were going back and forth. But you said that a lot of kids that you knew growing up in West Oakland, their lives weren't like that. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of kids, uh, especially my like my friend, my best friend Terry. For a lot of years, I never saw his father, and um, so I just assumed, you know, I didn't know where where he was. But his father was in prison, right? And that was uh, the reality for a lot of kids growing up in West Oakland. Either they were on drugs, and I'm not to say all of them. But I just wasn't present to a lot of kids that had fathers in the home. And uh, yeah, for reasons that, I mean, we can get into, you know, black men growing up in Oakland, you know, endangered species and all that. But uh, yeah, so, but I had a father. He was always stable. He was always in my life. And then sometimes my friends would envy that, right? And what I saw my father do, and I think I have that trait now, he would extend himself to those kids. Sometimes he would give my friends allowances Right. And sometimes if we were going somewhere, he would say, hey, ask uh, such and such to come along. So he became sort of this um, father figure for a lot of kids growing up in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I say that my connection to that, because as I start to look at my own life growing up and the, the work I'm doing in Sierra Leone, the soccer tournaments I have, the relationship I have with the children over there and the child minors um, and just my relationship with children in general, I, I kind of see that. I think I got that from my father. Yeah. Wow, that's that's interesting. That's interesting that the kids that you felt that they even at such a young age that they knew like I don't have a father present and you do and yeah, yeah. And if I, and it was and you know there could be a little bit of shame involved with that. Like Terry didn't tell me his father was in prison, and then his father would come out and we'd be playing, and all of a sudden, you know, it'd be like twelve, and then I wouldn't see his father for another four years. And then I wouldn't see him for another year. And then we, he, we'd see him when we were in high school and then we'd work out at the gym and he'd show us this, this workout at the park and we'd be doing nothing but the bars and we'd be doing this strong little workout. And I said, wow, your father's really strong. We're doing, you know, he's engaged, we're doing this workout. You know, unbeknownst to me that he was in prison a lot of that time. And so when he came out, it was sort of a, you know, he was making a connection back with his son and I was getting to meet him, but my, my friend never told me he was in prison, you see. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I could say more on that, but uh, I guess and so in some senses growing up in West Oakland also, I was, my mother 
and father protected me from a lot also like uh i just you know there was this side there's this thing about west oakland where you could live here but then if you go and you this is a this was true up in harlem a few years ago not now but you could live here but then you go one block over and it's like you know it's drug infested and it's crack and there's this and that and so but my mother always kept me and my father always kept me on this side so i never veered i could never veer over there you know and not because of fear of them but i think it's just because they um they just instilled in me some really strong values growing up and they set a good example like my father set a really good example you know what to be as a man and uh similarly with my mother also Right, I remember when crack was was kind of like becoming a thing. Oh yeah. And so I remember people would always ask for like ten, like because a rock was around like oh, ten dollars yeah. or something. Oh, there was yeah. always a story centered around ten dollars. Oh yeah. Because I grew up in the Bay Area too, and it was the same oh, yeah. thing. You cross one oh, yeah. part in, it was much different. And so I remember this one girl had this elaborate story, and I, I wanted to believe her, mm-hmm. but because she said the ten dollar part, <laughs> I was like, you know right. what? I, I had they. Had, right. Right. The kids at school had said, oh, the, the rocks cost, one right. rock is $10. And so see what you're alluding to now, see, that's when kids know too much too fast. It's like this generation right now with the media. You know, back then, you could be living in the hood, and yes, you would be exposed to things that you shouldn't really know about. Crack, weed, prostitution, you know, because we were living right off of San Pablo. San Pablo wasn't that far. So you could see prostitutes, you know, uh, sometimes during the day. Um, and so that's when the young kids... Um, you get to be tampering with their minds and, and you're giving them too much information. To, you're, you're, they're losing their innocence, if you will. And so I think my mother and father tried to protect my innocence for as long as possible. Uh, but I saw kids a lot younger than me that had lost their innocence a lot earlier. Yeah. Poverty would do that to you too. You know, because no, then you start knowing. Like for me, I never knew where food came from or that we were ever like didn't have money. You know, but when you're poor, you know you don't have money or somebody's going to have a conversation in the house around, you know, we don't have this. We have to get food stamps or, you know, EMT. Yeah. Right. Or, or also, too, how the parents of the other kids treat you. Uh, if, yeah. If, if you're aware enough and you can tell, well, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't come to the birthday party. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or there may not be a birthday party. Yeah. Right. right, right. Yeah. There may not be a birthday party, you know, so. Yeah, I guess it, so living in that environment and being, I guess, growing up at a level of, I don't know what, that, that, I'm using the word empathy now because it just, it made me, having what I had and it just made me more appreciative and it made me more just really sensitive around who other people were. I was always the kid wanting to help somebody out. I was always the kid wanting to go the extra mile to make sure somebody's feelings weren't hurt. I mean, that was me. And that was me and my family too, so... If Spike Lee didn't make She's Gotta Have It, would you be a filmmaker today? Wow, wow. For you to ask that question, that is so poignant um, because it's likely that I wouldn't. It is very likely that I wouldn't. I knew that uh, I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted a career that was going to service my community. Uh, It was gonna be around, uh, possibly around black men you know, and uh, and what that looked like. I was always, you know, rites of passage programs or whatever. But uh, the film thing didn't become a reality for me until I saw Spike Lee's early work. And I think it has a lot to do with modeling. You know, um, and we don't have a lot of, you know, it's like whether it's women, men, uh, black men, that is. You, you know, there's something to be said about representation 
and modeling. And at the time Spike Lee came around, there wasn't a lot of black filmmakers. I mean, that you knew about. I mean, there was Gordon Parks. He had done some work. Uh, the you know Shaft, but I mean, there weren't. And there was Michael Schultz. You know, he did Cooley High. And but these aren't films that like I would. I was really. I I love the films, but I didn't know particularly that they were a black man. But it was something about Spike Lee and his signature work when he was doing. Uh, she's got to have it. He was doing, you know, do the right thing. And it was just so pronounced and so much of a signature around black culture that I was like, this is what I want to do. So to answer your question, which is a really good question. I don't know if I would have been a filmmaker. Maybe I think I owe my career to Spike Lee. I don't know if I would have been led down that path. I don't. Yeah. That's really powerful. I mean, he had, he had a profound effect on me in terms of that. So you saw the film and then you decided to go to college at NYU Tisch? Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw, well, I was going back east. I was first, I was going to University of Massachusetts. And then uh, I saw, I had heard about him making a movie. And then I saw the movie in New York on my way to, you know, I was going to UMass Amherst. I drove cross country with a friend and I was just blown away. And so going into going into uh, UMass Amherst, which was my junior year, I set the intention. I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I was going to do whatever I had to do to be a filmmaker. So I started taking film classes. I started studying film. I started making films like on film, like 16 millimeter Bolex and uh, crank cameras. And uh, and then uh, I had decided uh, I was going to apply to NYU and I made a student film that got uh, I got a lot of awards at UMass where I was and um, and I applied to NYU because Spike Lee went to NYU. And so that was sort of my my, my pulse and my Geiger. My, my, he was sort of my North Star, if you will. You know, so I, I and I was reading all the books that he had, he had written at that time. And so I applied to NYU and I got in. Did you ever get to meet him? I did. I met him first year. Yeah, I met him the first year because he came to the he. Uh, there was a woman named Lisa Jones who had written his books. Right. She was his. Uh, yeah, she was his his collaborator on a lot of his film books. And she was at NYU. And she was a few years ahead of me. And she says, Spike's going to. And I heard when I got there, Spike likes to meet with the black students. Right. He likes to meet with them, you know, the first year. And so he invited us all to 40 Acres and a Mule, his production company. And I was like, just, you know, I mean, I was starstruck because he was my idol, is my idol. He was my hero. And I just shook his hand. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know. What did he great. say? Um, he didn't say much. You know, he was just, I mean, Spike was, he, he was a presence more than anything else because he was really, back then he was soft-spoken and um, he let his work speak. You know, that was his thing. And so for a lot of time I was like, wow, how's this guy doing this? I mean, because in the business you got to be aggressive, you got to be strong, but Spike is very disciplined. He's very focused. You know, you read his books. He would get up at 6 a.m. in the morning, write, write had a certain uh, quota he had to write on a screenplay. And, for, you know, for the first like six, seven years, he would do a, a movie every year. It would come out. And that was his process. He'd wake up 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, write, and then he'd go about doing his thing. But so he's a very disciplined individual. And um, yeah, but I was just like, you know, I was floored. Yeah, I was floored. He was my hero. Mm -hmm. At what point did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker? I think immediately after I saw Do the Right Thing. Yeah, that's what I was like pivotal for me. And just creatively, the way he put it together. And I didn't just want to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a black filmmaker. I mean, so that's the distinction I wanted to make. Like, I was aware 
of other filmmakers out there. But I was strongly um, concerned about like representation of black people and you know what what that would mean for for us as a collective in terms of us needing filmmakers to tell our stories. And so that became a very important thing for me. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of um, I embraced that. I embraced that. And they used to have conversations back then too. You're a filmmaker, you're a black filmmaker, you're a filmmaker, black. I mean, we had a whole conversation at NYU with people coming and actors would say, oh, I'm not a black actor, I'm just an actor. And I get that. I do get that. So, yes, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a Disa, the filmmaker. And so I don't want to be marginalized or I don't want to be you know, segregated over here to this other classification. But within the larger context of being a filmmaker, I'm also an African American. It's like being a woman filmmaker, right? Yes, you're a filmmaker, we get that. But within the specifics of that, you're also a woman making movies, right? And the reason I think you make those kind of distinctions is because of just the racism in society, right? And how they've, or the racism and the sexism and all that, and how they've regulated us to a certain area. So I, but I took a lot of pride in it. You know, I take a lot of pride in it. And uh, even today, you know, I want to be a role model for kids too. And, uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a black filmmaker, I'm uh, yeah. I'm a filmmaker who, who tells message stories, message films, yeah. Well, that's funny because you must be reading my mind because I was gonna go to the message part and that mm -hmm. is, did you see your parents uh, be about a cause or especially growing up in the Bay Area, I know it's very cause driven up there, got the you know whole influence from Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. So, did you see that in them growing up there? What was interesting about my generation is that even though my mother was a Black Panther and was very active in that movement, and my father had come from the South, were clearly, um, and my father, I, my father had me at a later age, right? And so he was born in like 1921. Okay, so he was coming from the South, clearly went through racism, segregation. He had been called boy. You know, uh, you know, he was he was coming of age where there wasn't a lot of opportunities for blacks. So he he ended up being a welder. He was a tradesman. You know, he became a welder and he came out to California, became a welder. So you knew he was very well aware of that. And when he would drive us home, his home to see his grandmother in the south in Alabama during the summertime, we would drive. My father used to have a gun in the car, a gun, and it was on the side of the door. Right, and so I'm like, okay, that's, that's already like, why are we driving with a gun? And then when a white cop would pull us over, and this happened, and invariably it would happen, right? He would get out. My father was very slow in his motions. He would get out very slow. He would say, yes, officer, no officer. Yes, officer, was I speeding officer? Okay, I was speeding officer. Okay, I'd like to see your license. Yes, officer, you can show you my license. He was very, like, overly, um, congenial, right? And then he would get out. But and now, in retrospect, you know, he was really probably concerned about the safety of his children. And we were in Arkansas, or we were in Texas, and where you know something could happen, right? And so, and because of his background coming from the South, which he knew all too well, um, you know, this is how he behaved in front in the presence of you know of, of law enforcement, if you will. And so, but I say all that to say that. So when I came of age, I think my father didn't tell me much about that at all. Like he didn't, really. And I know my mother didn't tell me about the 60s and the Black Panther movement either. It was later when I started going into college and I saw a book laying around. It was Hugh P. Newton's book, Blood in My Eye. And I was like, Mom, what is this? No, it was George, um, George Jackson's 
blood in my eye. And I was like, Mom, what is this? <laughs> you know, or he would be Newton's book and, it's, and he had signed it, autographed it for her. And then she would say, oh yeah, this is blah, blah, blah. And, but they tried to protect me from that. They did. And my father mm -hmm. tried to protect me from all that, the atrocities. You see that with a lot of, I think, my generation that came of age. It was like, they just didn't tell us about it. As if, you know, they were trying to protect us so that we could create our own futures and they didn't want to harm us because that was a very harmful period in our history. Yeah, so I didn't grow up knowing much about it. It wasn't until later that I would start to investigate it. Would you see your mom going to meetings, protesting? No, because it was beyond that. that at that point. It was beyond that. And so, yeah, I didn't see that. And she didn't talk about it. And my father didn't talk about the South. And they never talked about it. It was only later when I went to college that I would read up on it. And, or when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I remember, and I was, I was so curious. I said, Dad, blah, 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 you know about Malcolm? He said, yeah, I know about him. He was in the North, right? But then he wouldn't say much about him, you know? And he just wouldn't. He wouldn't say much about him. My mother was the same way. They didn't talk about it. Like, what about COINTELPRO? Like, did they, did they? And my mother knew about COINTELPRO and all that stuff, but she didn't talk about it. Because for them, I think it was, it was less not, it wasn't about passing on that information because uh, it's weird now that I think about it because so we grew up in sort of a, not a utopia, but it's like we didn't know about all that. That becomes this big schism between us. And I think in the Jewish community, you don't necessarily always see that because they teach, they keep teaching, you know, the generations, the Holocaust becomes a constant reminder. And, you know, you start going through the mitzvah and, you know, whether it's the, the rites of passage programs they do. And it's like, here, here's your information, here's your history. Whereas with us as African-Americans, sometimes it's like, um, we don't, some of us, I don't wanna say all of us, but that generational information is not passed down. And so, and I think because of the 60s and the turbulence of that and what was happening in the South, my mother and them just didn't wanna pass it on. And my friends didn't know about it either. You know, Growing up in Oakland? Yeah, didn't know. But I mean, would it probably be no different than basketball players now and you talk talking about, uh, you know, not Lou Alcindor, uh, not Kareem, but probably like Elder, Elders Baylor. And they're like, well, who's that? You know, they may not have that direct connection to who he is in terms of history. But it's then during that time that I began to see the connections to history and why we must know our history and how we empower ourselves through our history. Yeah. And how that history can also determine your future. Right. And so that's when I started to make that connection with Spike Lee, just to bring that back home in terms of who he was as a filmmaker. And then connecting that to, you know, how we didn't have images as black people. Or even so, even the images that we did have, whether it was Coffee Brown or some of the exploitation movies, we didn't direct. We did not direct them. So it was like, oh, okay. So that's, uh, I, need to, I need to change that. Your first short film was in 1994? <laughs> yeah, it was called uh, No to the Minor Key. And I, my collaborator on that was Avery Williams. And it was more like a mini feature. It was more like, uh, I mean, we were like, because, and I say that because Avery, I love him dearly, he's in uh, Atlanta right now and he's teaching at Morehouse. Uh, but he wrote that script and he brought it to me uh, to direct. And I was like, well, you know, we're gonna do this through the school. And we sort of did it through the school, but we sort of didn't do it through the school. We kind of broke all the rules, right? We used the school's equipment um, but we ended up, uh, we, we, so we started the, the, the film process there, but then um, because of some of my earlier work, 
I had gotten the attention of Disney Hollywood Pictures and they had started this discretionary fund program. And so they decided to give us uh, $40,000 to make that movie. And it was a period film, period film set in Harlem, 1947. And we had Keith David in it, we had Harry Lennox in it, you know, both big actors right now. And so and we were just young kids, just, I mean, just like fresh behind the ears, you know, 21, 22. Uh, you know, not really knowing a whole lot what we're doing, figuring it out as we go, but just keeping kept keeping it very professional. And um, and that film went on to win a lot of awards and get me a lot of attention. Got both of us a lot of attention. Wow, and 40,000 in 94. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. So it's 2019 now, and you are just releasing your first feature film? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the adage about, the whole old adage about, you know, what's holding you back, you... It probably stands true. And I think for a lot of years, I resisted um, writing, right? I became a better writer over the years. But when I first started out, I didn't really particularly write as much. And I think that the filmmakers that are really prolific or the ones that really uh, can get there faster, they generate their own material, right? And they write. So it goes hand in hand. They write and they direct. They write and they direct. So if you don't write, you're either having to find material or work with other writers. Right. And so I didn't write for a lot of years. And so when we look at the gap between when I graduated film school and when I came out with my first feature, a lot of it is because um, I was learning how to write in that period of time. Yeah, I was learning how to write. Mm -hmm. Were you reading screenplay books? I was reading screenplay books, but then life happens. Yeah. You know, and so I came out here uh, early 2000. Um, high hopes of directing, but it just didn't happen for me right away. It didn't happen. I had to get a job. And so then I started looking at what, what are my options? And then uh, I'd always done sound in school. I was pretty good at doing sound as a production sound person in school. So then I started doing sound out in LA on commercials and videos. And mm -hmm. So then what was it that made you want to do a feature film? Like why were you ready? What is it, two years ago? Or yeah, how yeah. Well, time was getting away from me, you know, and I, I had figured that was my dream. You know, I didn't want to get away from my dream of being a director. And so I just hankered down and I did whatever it took. I just that was my mantra. I just decided I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm going to confront myself at every corner. And so look at my weaknesses and I am make my weaknesses into strengths. And so then I just started to write and write and write and uh, and then, um, then I hooked up with another collaborator, another uh, writer, Stephen Pearson, uh, Stephen uh, Palmer Peterson, and he wrote Skin in the Game. And um, yeah. So were you almost uh, emulating Spike Lee, getting up at six? I was like getting up at six, literally. <laughs> I mean, it's like, even right now, you know, like the cost, you know, it takes a lot to be a filmmaker. And I think those that make it are the, probably, it's, it's, more, it's more determination and persistence versus talent. A lot of times, I mean, talent, hand in hand, you know, you, you know, you take that for granted, but you want to be talented at it. But I think it's, it's really about persistence and determination and how much you're willing to sacrifice in some cases. Um, yeah, because in some cases there, it, you know, you, got, you may not be eating, you know, you may be eating top ramen or you may be taking some least attractive jobs because it allows you more time to write, right? And I think this, I mean, when I made that decision, and you're not leaning on other people. In other words, your, the responsibility for your life and becoming a filmmaker is yours. It doesn't belong to 
your wives or your partners or your boyfriends or your mothers or your fathers. So it's not about them sponsoring you or giving you a cushion or saying, okay, you know what, you go ahead and write, here's, I'm gonna pay your rent for the next couple of months. So it's, it was about taking complete responsibility for, for my dream and what I wanted to make happen and what that looked like. And so, yeah, so if it meant working all day and writing all night, then that's what I did. Was it about, what, 10 years ago? You had something that happened that your heart stopped three yeah, different yeah. times? Well, you're doing your research. <laughs> uh, I went to, 10 years ago, I went to Sierra Leone with Isaiah Washington on a documentary uh, film shoot. And on that shoot, uh, that shoot literally would change my life. Uh, not only did I get exposed to Sierra Leone and um, the conditions over there, because they had just undergone a civil war, and Isaiah was looking up his roots, and I was part of the documentary team. I had a great experience. But when I came back, I had a near-death experience because I had gotten a virus over there called the Hantavirus. And when I got back to uh, L.A., um, I mean, I was, just, I was just fatally ill, and I had to be rushed to the hospital. I was in the ICU. And uh, my heart stopped beating three times. I had uh, multiple organ failure. And I was in really bad shape. And the doctors didn't think I was going to make it. Nobody thought I was going to make it. So my mother at that time flew up here. And uh, people were just praying. I mean, I was just in critical condition. And uh, But miraculously, I made it through. Yeah, I made it through. Did they know what it was? At they didn't at the time. They didn't. And uh, it was a good thing that I was at what they called... Uh, I was at Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital, and they were like, oh, thank God you didn't go to like Cedar Sinai. Because the Daniel Freeman Hospital, they could bring in other technicians from everywhere. Like they could bring in people from UCLA, they could bring in doctors from USC to, uh, to help on my case, right? Whereas I've been at Cedars, they have like clear rules about Cedar Sinai doctors working there and you can't bring others in. But because I was at Daniel Freeman Hospital, they were able to bring in other doctors. So nobody knew what I had. All I knew was I had multiple organ failure and my body was shutting down. And this one particular doctor stayed with me and he had to restart my heart three times in the middle of the night. And so, yeah, no, it, was, it looked like I was on my deathbed. It looked like I was on my deathbed. And actually, I thought I was on my deathbed too. The only thing kept me going was the fact that, because at, at one point I remember myself making um, sort of this uh, resolve that like, you know what, I'm gonna, if I'm gonna die, my last moments were in Africa. My last moments were playing with children. My last moments were with like, you know, um, having fun and, and sharing of my gifts with everybody. Cause that's where, that's what I was doing in Africa, we giving out soccer balls. And I had made some serious, some nice relationships over there. So I said, you know what, if I gotta go, then so be it. I had made, I had made peace with it, you know? And, uh, but it was another plan for me. It was another plan, I'm here. And how long were you in the hospital? I was there for about, uh, I was probably there for about, seven to eight weeks total but for, for like three weeks i was sedated and i was under heavy sedation as the doctors treated me and put me on dialysis and we just you know trying everything to fix me trying everything to make me better but nothing worked and they didn't know so they said they just had to let it run its course and just let me be uh you know just let me be and sort of get let my body fight it and uh so yeah so then when you returned home did you have any kind of like awakening where like, okay, now, because I've been to this point where most people 
haven't oh. been there or they, they end up oh, going. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Things yeah. are going to be different now. Oh, yeah, 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 much. So that what happened was when I got back and I gotten well, I shocked everybody because I told my mother I wanted to go back to Africa. And she was like, oh, no, you can't go back to Africa. Oh, no, you're not going to do that to me again. My mother was beside herself. My father, uh, everybody tripped out. I mean, they were like, no, you can't go back. Because I got an opportunity to go back with, um, was it Regina King? Yeah, Regina King, the actress had invited me to go back and work with her on her documentary. And so they were like, no, you can't go back, you can't go back, especially if you're going back to Sierra Leone, the same place. And so people were freaking out, like freaking out. And, uh, but I was resolved. I was like, you know what, I'm better. I can do this. And I wanted to do this. I wanted to be, I, there was some things that had happened to me by being sick, you know, like I was having revelations around my life and what I wanted to do with my life and, and how I wanted to show up. And so, yeah, and going back to Africa was part of it. So even in your, like, I mean, when you were conscious, but laying in, a, in this bed or whatever, you knew, like... Yeah, yeah, if I got better, I, I knew I wanted to go back. And, and I did go back. And, um, and not only did I go back, I started a foundation, the Vanaza Foundation. Not only did I go back, I had a soccer tournament we would do every year. And we would put kids through uh, um, school. We had foundation for that. I mean, I was like, we was working to get the kids out of the diamond mines. I was very active. Still am. Mm -hmm. And did you finish that documentary about the diamond mines? I did, mines? yeah. And, the and then, <laughs> then I shot a documentary on it, me going back. And so the documentary captures me going back, hosting the soccer tournament, giving the kids uh, uh, money for school, and giving a look at what the kids were doing in the diamond mines. Yeah. And these are minors that And these are young working. minors, like seven years old. 14, Muhammad and Musa. Yeah, I mean, they're older now, but yeah. Yeah, and so that was a really powerful thing for me. And that's actually started the ball rolling with my film career again, because once I did that documentary, I was just hungry and wanted to do a feature, right? So then what I did was uh, I wrote a feature based on my experience or rebirth experience about going to Africa and this trauma that I was experiencing. So it was sort of a true to life story, although I substituted myself for a football player. I made it a little bit more commercial. And we spent I spent a lot of years trying to get that going and I couldn't get it going. And then after a number of years, I just thought, you know, I gotta I gotta work on it. Because I couldn't raise the financing. So I said, let me work on a project that I can do that's doable, something that um, is uh, it's not gonna cost a lot of money. And I just happened to be up in Oakland at the time. And then my sister was talking about uh, how she wouldn't let her young daughter ride the bus. I said, why don't you let your daughter ride the bus? And why are you driving around everywhere? Because that wasn't my experience growing up. And she said, well, there are gorilla pimps up here. And just recently there was a gorilla pimp that snatched a girl off the bus and put her into prostitution. I was like, whoa, really? And so that stuck with me. That stuck with me. And in the midst of that, I'm looking for my next subject matter in terms of my film. Uh, then I came back up to uh, came back up to LA, and on the newscast that exact same week, it was talking about a young girl who was prostituting herself on Long Beach Boulevard, and I was like, oh wow! So I just couldn't ignore those two sort of circumstances or those two instances of prostitution and trafficking that came up. And at the time, I didn't even know it was called trafficking. I was just like prostitution, prostitution. It wasn't until I would read it later that I would say, oh, they're the one and the same prostitution trafficking, these girls don't want to do it. Some of them are being manipulated, coerced, you know, and that's how, and then I just started to research it heavily and then um, started to think about what a film could look like. 
I'm just curious, did people notice that you had changed in that you had gone through where you, you faced death and then when they saw you again after maybe a year later, they noticed your personality was different or uh, in that you had a new sort of purpose or? Um, I think the light had turned on more. I'm not gonna say it was completely different. I mean, I was like, I was already like a very positive, optimistic person wanting to do things, but I was probably stopping myself like the, the tournament in Africa and working with the kids. I never thought I could do that. You know, like I, there was something about the way I was living life that I felt like um, that was larger than what I could do, right? And so I started to, t so yes, to answer your question, once I got better, I started to test the boundaries more like around greatness and largeness and saying that I can do it. I can do that. Why not? Right? And so, yeah, in that way. And then having to experience death also, I mean, it just gives you this sense of, I'm not saying immortality, but you to experience and be that close to death and to know that it could be snapped away from you at, the, at an instant, it, it kind of sharpened my focus about living life in the present, moment to moment, and doing as much as I can in that moment. And that was yeah. in 2009? Yeah. So do you notice that a trajectory of what you've done mm -hmm. since, you, like if you saw like a timeline of yeah, Jesus' life? Yeah, 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 yeah. From the documentary to the, the, the trafficking movie, when a skin in the game we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, but along that, we just have to realize that it just takes a lot to make it in film. I mean, it's not like, and they're talking overnight successes, 18 years. You know, somebody says, oh, yeah, you made it, man. You're, you're over, and it's been working at it for 12 years, 13 years. You know, some cases, 20 years. Um, you know, you never see a young Morgan Freeman on the screen. I mean, like, can you imagine a young, what would a young Morgan Freeman look like? You know, you've seen him in his 40s, you know, you see him in, when he did Glory and all that. And he's already older, he's like, already like in his 40s. But what does a younger one look like? You know, the electric company, <laughs> you know. But, so, I, so I, I say that to say that, you know, it was happening for me, but nothing happens overnight. And so it was just a lot of hard work and, um, and a lot of dedication, a lot of time. Did you think before that it, it was possible to be this over? Like when you were leaving Tish, did you think, you know what, you know, because I, I, I think people don't realize sometimes how, how long it yeah. takes to get something. To yeah, I, no. I mean, if you had told me when I graduated that it was gonna take uh, 15 years to do a feature, I'd been like, no. I'd been like, you're kidding. You know, you're out of your mind. I would've been more like that, right? And so, no, I mean, I thought it was going to happen right away. And then I got, uh, you know, I got hit in the face with reality, filmmaking, what it really takes. And, um, and not only that, it sometimes it just takes a lot of luck. It takes a lot of being in the right place at the right time. So, and sometimes it just takes what it takes. Sometimes it just, it, it took me, like if I had to say would I want to do any of it over, no. Because, you know, if I had made it right out of film school, I probably wouldn't have gone to Sierra Leone, right? I wouldn't have been gone, I wouldn't have been a sound man, so I wouldn't have gone over there with Isaiah Washington. I, uh, I wouldn't have um, started a foundation. So my life probably would have been on another trajectory. So I don't have any regrets. It happened the way it happened, I embrace that. Yeah. And, and um, to answer your question about just being stronger. Yeah, so the experience made me stronger and it challenged me to be better. Mm -hmm. With Skin in the Game, what made that project different from the other movies that you had gotten off the ground or been a part of? Yeah, Skin in the Game was probably one of the hardest films I had to make. 
up to this point because emotionally I had to take myself emotionally and in the writing I had to take myself to a really dark place right uh, trafficking is a dark dark world and so it was probably it probably wouldn't have been my first choice but I was somehow compelled I was just compelled to tell the story after meeting the women talking to survivors I just got deeper and deeper and I just said this is something I have to do but um yeah but I think I probably resisted it at first only because of the, the you know the subject matter and the darkness of it but then at some point I just uh I couldn't avoid it as a filmmaker and as a human being I mean I was just as a human being I felt like I needed to tell the story I felt like the voice of these women needed to be told yeah and were some of the women that I mean on set were they survivors of this yeah or, oh okay. yeah we had one in particular her name was Jayla Baxter uh, there's another woman named uh, Delita Miller both survivors uh, both uh, had been trafficked at some point both um, were prostitutes escorts you know and then they were on the other side of it now they were now rescuing girls right and they were in a leadership position so they gave us a lot of counsel and I mean I leaned on them heavenly in the research of the movie you know, uh, terms you know the subject matter you know I mean something Jayla would always say was you know a young boy doesn't grow up thinking he wants to be a pimp you know so you remember that in terms of the empathy to everybody involved right and so you know pimps have been groomed too you know and a lot of times what I've studied in the research not to give them a pass but I've found that um, if you look at their backgrounds and the women sometimes that are trafficked they're equally the same you know no father abusive father molestation right neglect um, not feeling loved yeah a lot of that stuff right and so just empathy I mean she just really Jayla was just really strong on talking about empathy and she was really strong on talking about boys and girls being trafficked it wasn't just girls it was boys too so a lot of stuff I was hearing for the first time like they were living it but I was hearing it for the first time you know and how did you meet them uh, well at first it was uh, it was really hard to get into the community and when I say the community it's like uh, I was go to meetings trafficking organization meetings but I couldn't meet the girls I couldn't meet the survivors for obvious reasons you know because number one uh, I'm a filmmaker so they they're thinking oh, exploitation they could be thinking that you know cash exploitation or what that could mean um, and then I was an outsider I didn't know anybody and so then when I tried to talk to some of the girls it's hard too because a male talking to a young survivor could also be a trigger for her you know and when I say trigger that's like a woman um, who's been through a trauma or an experience right and then uh, a male figure shows up and whether you know my hair complexion whatever it could have it could have been a trigger for her you know me interviewing her talking to her so they want to avoid that giving these women triggers you know what I mean uh, like uh, there was one woman I interviewed who said that and she's a survivor and a leader and she you know had been through a lot but she said that if her pimp came in the room right now and said let's go and she'd been out of her life like say 10 years but she said if her pimp came in the room right now and said let's go she said she would get up and walk out with him yeah so this living trauma that these go through that these women go through is real and so I had to you know the level of sensitivity around that and having to having to live and breathe the story for a long time before I was able to put it on paper. Mm -hmm. And you wrote the film? No, I actually I came up with the story. 
And I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of did the outline and the treatment. But then uh, Steve Peterson came on and he wrote the script. How did you meet Steve? I met Steve because I was working on um, the first film. Uh, it was called Diamonds in the Rough. This was the one going back to Africa. And uh, Steve had, had, give, had did some work on that script. And I met him through a, another producer, Tom Shell. Mm -hmm. And then when we took the script, uh, Skin in the Game, to Howard, who eventually produced it, Howard Bear, show we can't do films, uh, we went through a whole other development process. Yeah, because I had originally wrote the script like, um, I don't know if you remember the movie Traffic with Michael Douglas, but it was, it was yeah, it was what, what happened in that movie, it had multiple storylines. Like, it was him, it was this, it was this. And so that's how I envisioned telling the story of these girls. Like, I had one being abducted, I had one who had a Romeo pimp who had groomed her into the life, I had another woman that was uh, a seasoned prostitute in there. So it was like these multiple storylines inter intersecting, right? But then when I took it to Howard Barish, and Howard was very seasoned at making movies, especially independent movies. And Howard had worked with Ava DuVernay, and he worked with her on um, Middle of Nowhere and her first film, I Will Follow. And he had, you know, he had films go to Sundance. So he was like the seasoned Shepherd producer. And so when I took him the story, he was like, I like it. And he wanted to get involved because he, he himself had been touched by trafficking also. And so, and he was also coming into this new awareness of what this was, because it was everywhere and it was all around us. And uh, I started to share the story with him. And um, the more I shared, the more he got enthused and wanted to get behind the film. Uh, but he thought it was just too large. Like it was too much going on. It was too many different stories. So his first suggestion was you gotta streamline. You gotta streamline it and you know, tell a singular story. Right. And this was for not just it was for budgetary reasons. It was for festival reasons, you know. Uh, yeah. And it was for good filmmaking reasons at that at that particular point, too. So it's just not, it's not all over the place. And we didn't have the budget to really support that. And so I went back to the, to the woodshed. And then that's when I um, I leaned heavily on uh, Jayla. And Jayla, I met Jayla, she's a, a trafficking or survivor and a leader. And she's, she, this woman is, she's amazing, an amazing woman. And she's rescued over 5,000 girls, 5,500 boys and girls within an 18 year period. Wow. And I found her, I don't know, by chance, fate, I don't know you call it, but she was in Watts teaching in her grandmother's, ba or one of her relatives basement church about how gangs are trafficking young girls. And I saw the flyer, how gangs are trafficking young girls, learn about this and find out how to prevent it. So I went and uh, wow, she blew my way. She blew me away. And then I met with her afterward and we talked and, uh, and then she became very integral in, in sort of the development of the way the story was being unfolded now. And she came on board as a consultant and uh, yeah, as a consultant for us. Because now the story is about a mother and a daughter and then yeah, getting a, a former well, Yeah, she, and she was always in it. The mother and daughter was always in it, but um, I, it wasn't about a woman former prostitute rescuing her. And that's where Howard made the input and said, you got to streamline it. And then we realized that um, to tell that particular story, I needed to know more about that woman because I didn't know much about her, you know, the prostitute now rescuing girls. And that's when I, I started to research and talk to Jayla a lot and Delita Miller. Was there ever a time you wanted to give up filmmaking? Wow. You know what? I have to be, in terms of me wanting to give up filmmaking... I don't think there's ever been a time I wanted to give up. Honestly, I mean, there's always been, there's been hard times. I mean, there's been times where I've, uh, there was one time when I first moved to LA and I literally lived in six different places in seven, no, I lived in eight different places in six months. 
And there was one time when my friend moved, I moved with him because I was just couch surfing. I would be here and I'd be here. So, and then there was a time I lived out of my car, right? Literally, I was just living out of my car. And so I've had some really hard times, but I've never wanted to give up, never in terms of, and maybe it's because I just went too far down that road and I was like, oh, there's no, nothing else I want to do. But um, the vision of being a director and a filmmaker has always been there, you know, despite, you know, circumstances. Yeah. But I've, but I've had, you know, lived out of my car, lived out of a soundstage. Um, yeah. I've, 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 yeah, I've paid the price. <laughs> and not that everybody has to do that, right? Um, but when you're, you know, when you have a dream and you're committed you know, and that's and it's something that you believe in wholeheartedly, then you'll do whatever it takes. You'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. So you were living out of your car and were you still being creative or at least attempting no, to be creative? No, it was hard. To answer your question, living out of my car and being creative, it was hard. And uh, no, I wasn't, I was still writing, but it was hard. And at some point um, I had to just find a job. And that's when I started to do the sound thing more seriously, you know, just to keep a roof over my head. You know, people don't realize how hard it is to be a filmmaker in L.A. But when you first get here, you don't know anybody. It's tough. And so I had to get out of survival mode. Right. I had to get to a place where now I have money coming in. I'm paying the rent. I'm, I'm eating. I don't have to call home and ask my mother for money for, you know, for rent. I had to. So so being in survival mode is a really hard place to be. And um, but L.A. is not a, it's not an easy place to break in. It's just not. You know, you come out here that a lot of people are doing what you want to do. Um, more, some more committed than others. Uh, relationships take precedent a lot of time. When you first get there, who do you know? Right. You're building your foundation. You're building your network. And so and that takes time. It takes a lot of time. That's why my advice is sometimes when people first get out here, I'm like, you know, sometimes before you even get here, if you're wherever you are, you know, Idaho or, you know, or Oakland, California, if you will, you know, to get a body of work, write scripts, have four or five scripts, you know, or two, three, two or three scripts. Don't just come out here with one script, have two or three scripts, then come out here, right? Then that way you, you're going to be struggling, you're going to be living, but you've got a body of work. Now you can kind of go out and shop that. Uh, but, we, but to do that while you're out here, it can be really tough, especially when you're struggling. So once you got this stable job and you got mm -hmm. an apartment or your roommate or whatever, yeah. then did you did it happen gradually or did you feel like, okay, now, now that I have something coming in every two weeks or whatever on this paycheck, I can start writing and what do yeah, I want to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I had, I had to get out of, the, out of the place of, I would meet people and they would give me hope. Like I would get my script to somebody and somebody like, oh, I can do it, I can do it. But then I had to realize that a lot of people in L.A. just talk, <laughs> right? And so... Um, and I would call home, mom, I met such and such, or, or uh, you know, a girlfriend if I had it at the time. Oh, I just got the script. So I just had to get out of that place, right? And so now having done it for a lot of years, now um, I have, ex I, don't, I take the expectation off of it. Like I have hopes that um, everything is going to happen, but I take the expectation, like meaning I'm going to give this person the script, they're going to green light it. We're going to make it, and it's going to be done. Because that doesn't happen a lot of times, right? And if you always set yourself up for that, like, oh, it's going to happen, then you're living in a constant state of disappointment. 
So I think the best thing to do is just sort of give it to somebody and release. Give it to somebody. You have high hopes, but don't be too attached to it or the expectation, right? Because you may set yourself up for disappointment. And, um, and a lot of people I know, a lot of writers I know, go through a lot of depression. You know, I don't want to come out of the house. I want to talk to people. And so I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. Um, but yeah, I've just learned to just sort of just release. I mean, put the effort, you know, in, in the case of Howard, when I gave him the script and we started to talk about it, I mean, it was a year later. I mean, we developed that thing for a whole year. Oh like, so it didn't just happen. Like I gave it to him, piqued his interest. He liked it, but he wanted to develop it. Right. And he developed it, me not even knowing he was going to make it. I mean, it was never a promise or him saying, oh, yeah, you know, if we get it to this place, I'm going to give you the money or I'm going to finance it. It was just, it was a cordial, it was a great relationship. The, the script was becoming better, so I didn't mind the relationship because he would give us notes and the script would be better. So at the end of that process, whether he was going to make it or not, I was going to have a better script. So I was like, this is a win-win for me. And then, uh, but then at the end of that year, uh, he felt really good about the script and where it was at in terms of place and he said let's go ahead and make it and I think we can make it in uh, you know I think it was at that time it was maybe in August and he said we can make it in November and he had another film he was going to do before mine mm -hmm. and then he pulled the trigger on it yeah I always think it's like a kiss of death when somebody says especially to a young person I want to help you yeah and I don't mean to sound negative yeah. but you really do have to have oh, your yeah. guard up yeah, especially yeah. those those oh, yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I've met with, uh, since I've d directed that film, Skin in the Game, I've met with some big TV directors, right? I won't even name their names. And, uh, but I don't go in there thinking, oh, they're going to help me. They're going to put me on. You know, that's, that's what some people, young people like that term, being put on. Somebody's going to grab you, going to have some kind of Wizard of Oz or boom, and now you're on. And I just, it doesn't happen like that a lot of times. And then you have to ask, what's it in for that other person? Sure. You know, like I generously give myself to other people now. I want the, I want to help other people, you know, but I know it's because it's just part of who I am. But some people aren't built like that. Some people, you know, I mean, they may give you one word of advice and that's it. Don't ask me for nothing else. Right. And so, and some people will go beyond that. But so I, I've just learned to kind of um, just take what people can give me. You know, take and, and to the point about meeting with these directors, I don't expect anything from them. Hey, listen, if the guys can tell me what helped them, what worked for them, sometimes that's good enough for me. Yeah. Yeah, I know there was another person that was upset because they felt that the peers around them had, or the people around them that were sort of peers had made it and that person hadn't. Yeah. And they were upset. They said, they won't help me. Yeah. But at some point, I, I have to think that someone can't risk their reputation and just trying mm -hmm. to pull up their mm -hmm. friends too? Well, I've had that happen too. And my conversation around that, especially when it comes down to, uh, well, in general, yeah, it's a tough thing to do because, um, well, let me back up. I'm going to say what I wanted to say. So uh, when it comes down to black filmmakers and women filmmakers, I admire what Ava's doing. You know, like Ava's hiring women filmmakers to direct for the first time on her show, Queen Sugar, right? And by giving them a shot, and some of these women have done shorts, but most of them have done independent features, but nobody looks at them, right? So then when they take meetings, they're saying at the meetings, uh, TV meetings, that is, I want to direct TV. They're like, well, have you ever done TV? Well, it becomes a catch-22. Well, how am I going to do TV if I've never done it? And how are you going to give me a shot if I've never done it? But yet they've done these feature films, right? But Ava is eliminating all that. She's giving women a shot. 
to direct qualified women now, women that have proven themselves, you know, and but we can more of us can benefit from that, right? Like more, especially for me, when you're talking about like I don't want to use the word minorities, but when you're talking about like people that don't traditionally have a shot, and that have been kept out of the mainstream, right? So then I think you have to set up not just lip service programs, but work with these people, and if they're qualified, to get them in. Sort of creating this new pool of filmmakers, if you will, is that a lot of the filmmakers she's reaching out to have independent films, they've done shorts, so they've done something. So they've qualified themselves on a certain level, right? And now she's giving them access to direct TV, and now so when they go back to producers and television and say, um, and a lot of the directors, by the way, have gone on, Sally Richardson, you know, uh, Cheryl Dunier, have gone on to do television beyond Ava, but she's given them that start. But these filmmakers um, have all paid dues. And I make, I make that a specific point because people don't want to pay dues anymore. They just want to be put on. They want to come out to LA and they want somebody to just, like a fairy godmother, to just come in and say here. Or they want to write one script. Or they want to write two scripts and say, oh, I'm ready, you know. And it just takes more than that. Um, I've paid a lot of dues. Uh, and I think that people should pay dues, you know, and when I say pay dues, it's really about just uh, getting better at your craft, right? Or doing, you know, sometimes you have to be an assistant before you can be a writer, before you can be in the writer's room, right? Or sometimes you have to be, uh, you know, direct shorts before you can direct a feature, right? So it's about paying those kind of dues. Um, in my case, I don't even know if I look at it as dues anymore, as is more as just a necessary stepping stone to get where you want to be. Like, I've paid dues, but for me now, it's like climbing the mountain. Now I'm here, okay, and now I got to get to here, and I'm grabbing here. And so for me, just because I've done an independent film, I still feel like I'm paying dues. Like, I've gone, I, listen, I've come a, a long way, and I, I want to applaud my efforts and the people around me that have supported me to do this feature film, right? But to do another film at another budget point is going to require another kind of paying dues. So I haven't made it by any stretch of the imagination, right? And what does making it mean anyway? You know, so, I mean, I mean, I think we all set our own standard for what success is. And so I'd like to think that I'm successful at this level in terms of having done this feature film. Uh, but there's other milestones and other goals that I want to set for myself. Can we go back to just what steps you took either to meet Howard Barish, the producer, or how did yeah. you, what was your like initial pitch to him? Yeah, Howard Barish was an interesting um, milestone for me because prior to meeting Howard, I had developed scripts and written scripts, but I was always in the mindset, remember I'm learning about filmmaking, but in, I'm in the mindset, I'm gonna get into an independent, I'm trying to raise independent financing. Right, and for me that looks like my mother maybe giving $10,000 if my mother had it, or a friend giving $5,000, or just finding money like that. Or, and I was led down the wrong path so many times, talking to people in Atlanta, talking to a casting director who knew somebody with money in Atlanta, and they'd get excited about the project and say, they, oh, they, yeah, they, we, wanna get, we wanna get this thing going, we like it, blah, 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 and you don't hear from them again, right? And that had happened so many times. Like, I mean, the, me, the, the amount of people I had talked to that weren't really, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna use a qualifier here. They'd never produced a film before. They'd never uh, given money to a film before. So that becomes, 
for, for any filmmaker going out there to making a movie, I mean, certainly you can work with people that have never done it before and they're going to give money. But I think a, 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 I just get, it's just a better fit if somebody's done it before. Like you take your film or script to a production company that makes it. You know, or you take it to another company that makes movies. Like you know, they have a history of that, right? Versus, um, okay, let me, you know, uh, let me take it to this person. Let's take it to this person. And I had done that for years. I don't know why, but I was doing that for years. And so, and I was always reaching dead ends. Okay, and this is before um, GoFundMe and um, and and all that. But uh, so I had uh, I was had worked on the script, and I met with a camera guy, a friend of mine, and he had worked with Howard. He had worked with Howard on a few projects, so he knew Howard, right? And the camera guy said, uh, he said, yeah, you know, I think I can get it to this guy, um, Howard Barish, you know, he makes movies. And uh, yeah, because he, he, you know, he did some stuff with Ava uh, Duva, Duva, and the guy didn't even know who Ava DuVernay was, right? He's like, uh, it's a friend of mine, right? He's like, uh, yeah, he did some stuff with Ava, Ava Duva, I said, DuVernay? He said, yeah, yeah, that's her, that's her, that's her. <laughs> I said, really? So I got excited immediately because I was like, oh, Howard Barish, she said stuff with Ava DuVernay. And I had already studied up on Ava, right? I knew who Ava was. And Ava at that time, I think she did, did Selma, was she doing Selma? Yeah, she was shooting Selma. And uh, yeah, she was in the middle of shooting Selma or she had shot Selma. And so I was like, yeah, 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 if you can make the introduction, please. And so he made the introduction and Howard called me and uh, we, we had a, well, no, I sent Howard the script first, and then it took Howard a while to read it. But you learn that in this business too. People are not like people are not pressed to read your script. You're not going to give it to them. They're like, oh yeah, I want to read it over the weekend. It just doesn't happen. And so you learn to. I mean, I'm even more detached now. But back then, I was still like, has he read it yet? Has he read it yet? But I know I'm patiently like, okay, don't call him in a week. Don't call him in two weeks. Um, but then I think I called him in like maybe three weeks later, and he said, oh no, I haven't read it yet. But I'm, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And then uh, the next call, he called me. And he said, I read your script. And I didn't know Howard from Adam, right? Howard's a really nice guy. Like, he's really cool. He's really, like, unassuming. You wouldn't know that he has a BAFTA award or that he's been nominated for an Emmy, you know, or that he uh, produces these big CW campaign commercials. I mean, you just wouldn't know it. And so that's what I liked about him. Like, he's really, like, just low-key and assuming, unassuming. And so he just had an off-the-cuff chat. Yeah, I liked your script. He says, you know, it's, it's okay. He says, you know... Why don't you come in? We can talk. And uh, he invited me down to the office. And I came down to the office and I met with him. And uh, we just, I think we kind of just hit it off right away. Again, he's just a very unassuming, low-key kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he talked about Ava, you know, the journey of making independent films and why he was passionate about supporting younger artists, new emerging filmmakers, and how he had, uh, he was just committed to that. I mean, he just, you know, he was committed to that. He did it with Ava and... So he uh, took the film, you know, took the script, and then we started to work together at that point in terms of developing. And like I said, it took over a year to get it to where we needed it to be. And during that point, I would just rewrite it, and I would give it to him, and he would give me notes, and I'd rewrite it and give it to him, and he'd give me notes. And so we went back and forth for, you know, a few drafts until we got it to where we needed it to be. And you emailed him initially? Do you, is that right? Or yeah, I emailed him, uh, or did I call him? I think I called him. I think I called, I don't know, you know, sometimes I write the emails, but it's like, it depends. Because I don't want to catch people off guard. You know, when you write, when you call them right away, it's like, oh, hello, who, who? <laughs> you know, they have to adjust themselves. And I don't want them to play pretend and all that stuff. So, um, 
But I think in Howard's case, because Brian, the guy I met, set up the introduction, um, I think I called him. I think I called him. I may have emailed him. I don't know. I don't know. It could have been an email, actually. And he gave me his number and he said, let's talk. It may have been an email. Sure. It could have been. Because I like that soft intro sometimes. It gives people, they can gather themselves on the other end. You know. Well, he doesn't know if you're a solar panel salesman. So. Yeah, he doesn't know. You know, and then, you know. Of course, I had, and, and, and you know, Howard took a, a big gamble too, because you see, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm ready, I can do a film. I know I can, right? But from the other person who's financing the film, who's going to produce it, he didn't know. Because it's not like I'd done a, I did, yeah, I did some shorts. And he saw the shorts, but it's not like I had done a feature before. Feature's a whole other animal. We can talk about that. It's like um, a short film is a short film into itself. But a feature, in terms of shooting it, we did ours in 17 days. The actors following first act drama, second act, third act, and then arc of characters, and then um, uh, just the stamina as a director to show up every day with, with, with a game plan. It takes something, you know, and everybody, everybody, and sometimes you can fail on the job. Like, you know what I mean? Like you can be a first time director and get all set, but you better have first AD who's very clear about laying out a schedule, uh, a DP who's done this numerous times. So they've got you sort of, um, they're supporting you in making that first feature. And so the, the margin of error for you becomes less, right? Does that make sense? Because you're a first time director, but yet you've got, you know, an AD, an experienced producer in Howard, and you got a DP who can sort of steer the ship. But when you, when you don't have that, you know, and then you got a first-time director out there, anything can happen. So you, you you don't know, you know, you become an unproven talent until you've done it, you know. And uh, so I knew I could do it. I felt I was very confident about that. I've been on enough sets, and uh, my experience doing the shorts and the documentary, and I had. I had an acumen around film. I studied a lot of films. I had, uh, yeah. But I mean, there were, there were things surprised me on the set too. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was. It was still. It was still a challenging experience. You know, like I was still figuring things out. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, I remember one day I showed up on set and Kira Kelly was our DP. Kira Kelly now shoots uh, Queen Sugar, uh, uh, black woman DP. I mean, really talented. And so I remember one morning, we did a shot list top to bottom, right? And so we knew exactly how we were gonna approach each scene, the movie in itself. You can kind of do that with a 16 day shoot, and you, or you better do that. You better be very specific about what you're gonna cover because you don't have a lot of, like we're not, we don't have a Spielberg set where we can play with, oh, we're gonna shoot this one scene one day, you know, or David Fincher. Yeah, let's just do this one scene one day. You know, like we got to shoot like really four or five scenes in a day. And so, um, but I showed up one morning and I said, I got an idea for this shot, right? And she looked at me. She said, yeah? And I said, yeah, why don't we start here and put it on a dolly and then move it up here as they get out of the car, right? She said, wow, that's really cool. I like that. She said, but that's not on the shot list. We didn't talk about that. I said, I know, I know, but it's cool because I got inspired, right? I got inspired that night before. I said, no, I know, but it's a cool shot. It's going to look really cool. And uh, she said, yeah, no, but we didn't talk about it. And I said, but she said, but do you want to do it? I said, yeah. She said, but it's going to take a little time because we got to put the dolly, blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, nah, but let's, let's go. Let's go for it. And they started to set up the track, right? And one dolly man and 
and he was one dolly grip, and he was laying the track, and he was you know leveling the track, and then hadn't even put the dolly up there yet. And I looked at him, and I said, damn, this is 10 minutes, and he hadn't even laid that track yet, and he's still trying to level it. And I'm like, 15 minutes, and I said, scrap it. Let's go back to the plan, let's go back. She said, you sure? She's a really professional DP, and what I liked about it was she's gonna give me my vision. Right, so she was cooperative in that sense. You know, a lot of DPs, you know, argumentative and whatnot. I mean, not all of them, but you know, I've heard stories. But she was very like, "It's your vision. Let's do it." Um, but I saw how long it was taking to put that track up, and I said, "Kill it, kill it. Let's go back." And she said, "You sure?" I said, "Yeah." So that was an instance where, in terms of me growing as a director, knowing, especially with this budget, what you can do and what you can't do. Right, and we could not afford, we, whether time, money, or otherwise, to lay a track down and do a dolly. And I didn't have a trained crew like that. You know, like I didn't have, I've been on other sets where uh, they have dolly grips and two or three people working the dolly. We didn't have that. You know, we had like two people in the dolly, in the grip department, two people in the lighting department. Some days we spread out to three, but on bigger scenes, but we didn't have that. So I was like, you know what? So I learned my lesson. I may have cost us 15 minutes, but if I had continued on that path to do that shot, I would probably cost us about 45 minutes, really. Because then we, now you have to allow for the shot. One time you have to allow for the dolly. Oh, they missed the dolly mark. Then you got to allow for the pull focus. Oops, he missed his mark. So everybody got to allow for a mistake, right? And then the guy pushing it, oh, he made a mistake. So it's like, you know, it, it, it increases the... Um, uh, the take value, or the ratios in terms of shooting it too. So I surrendered it. But um, I say that by way of a learning lesson. You know, I learned by doing the first feature too. And imagine if she had fought you on it, you might have spent a half hour oh, yeah. trying to prove your point. Oh yeah. So it was brilliant that she said, okay, oh, yeah. you sure? Okay, let's, and let's then yeah. you got to see within 15 minutes that it was gonna cost more time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, sometimes it's just, there's no getting around doing a first feature. Like, you have to do it. And like, people think it's, I don't know if people think they can dial it in or it's easy. I don't, I, sometimes I get that impression when I talk to filmmakers, especially that filmmakers that haven't done it before, they think they can just, they're gonna be great at it. But, you know, it's like anything else, you know, whether you do sound, or you deep, they don't look at it like a DP. Like a DP, you know, when you shoot something, it's gonna take a minute to perfect your craft. It's just gonna take a minute. Lighting, you know, camera, lenses, that's a very technical thing. But being a good director can be that too, right? Sometimes people think they can just step on set and just, oh, boom, let's make it happen. But no, you know, the good directors, the really good ones, they worked at it, they worked at it. So um, I have an appreciation for directing and I do a lot of studying on it, blocking, you know, coverage, you know, working with actors. I've taken classes, you know, in terms of directing classes. Brad Barnes does a great uh, director's working with actors class. I've taken that. Frederick Huglis, uh writing, because um, I think all directors should be able to write. I mean, it helps. It helps you to understand story, arc, where it's going. You don't become, it's just, you know, yeah, it just helps you become a better story technician. So, you know, I, I believe in the craft. I believe in knowing the craft. I've worked with actors a lot. And so and it becomes very helpful, yeah. Having done many short films, when you actually started with the feature, did you think you were going to be as calm under pressure when things, 
you're, you're having to come up with not just a plan B, but a plan C. And then you know that there's all this money riding on it and there's all this time. Yeah. You've got to make your day. Yeah. D- did you realize how much pressure there would be having to make these decisions on the fly? Yeah, it was gradual. It was gradual because um, I heard somebody explain it to me like this. Like you could be a producer, right? And say somebody's driving you. There's a driver and he drives you to. No, no. This is a better example. Okay, so you're going to school, right? And so your mother's driving you every day. She's driving you every day to school. You're just kind of sitting there, you're on your phone, you're talking, or you're on the email and blah, blah, blah. And you've done this route to school like a million times, right? And then one morning your mother says, okay, you drive. And all of a sudden you're like, uh, which way am I going, right? So it can be like that a little bit. You know, like I had, I've been, even though I'd been on a million sets and I had uh, worked as a sound technician and, um, you know, they deed. It's not, you know, but to be in the seat of directing, it's a whole different conversation. The decisions that are being put on you, the questions, I mean, you get a million questions a day, right? And then having to just be very clear about your shot and then being able to walk away from a scene saying, we got it or we don't got it. We need to stay longer, right? Or how, okay, I shot this, I took more time than I needed to. I really gonna screw myself up at the end of the day. <laughs> so now I have to think about a wonder and how I can get make my day that way. So, I mean, it was it was it, it, it was very it was challenging. I mean, it was it was challenging at times. You know, I was getting that muscle up. You know, to become yeah, I was getting that muscle. I think I think I came with a lot of strong stuff. Like I work with actors a lot, and so that was sort of easy for me. You know, um, technically working with the equipment was. It was, I had a handle on that. I think it was the scheduling and kind of knowing how long things would take, like the action sequences I did. Like I did not know it was gonna take as long as it took. And so when we did the schedule, and so I'm sitting there as the AD's doing the schedule and he's saying, yeah, this is this, is, and I'm signing off on it. You know, and I'm signing off on it basing, basing I don't really have the experience, I mean, I'm not, I haven't done the action, right? But I'm signing off on it basing, yeah, it should take that long, it should take that long. There's a difference between that and having experience doing it. Right, that's why you go on and do your second feature, your third feature, you're like, no, 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 I need more time. No, no, that's not gonna work. Oh yeah, I can cut that. I, yeah, we can get that in the early point and we get, we're done. You know, like we did a lot of car shots, the hostess tray, I mean, one day the guy set up the hostess tray and it wasn't my fault and it wasn't um, the AD's fault, but the guy just took forever to, do, to set up the hostess tray for the car mount shot, right? And it's because he didn't know what he was doing. He just did not know what he was doing, and it took him a long time. Or I shouldn't say, he was green. He wasn't an experienced guy. So that's the other thing when you work with independent or, or lower budgeted films. Sometimes you're not getting the cream of the crop, right? So you're getting guys that, you know, trying to break in, trying to, you know, you know for, elevate themselves in their own careers. But this is where they are right now. So the guy just took forever. And so I was like, wow, this is killing us, man. This is killing us. And so I, the minute I had to just switch up and say, we can't do this. We got to go to another shot. Or he screwed, the, the, because he didn't know what he was doing or he just screwed us. Now we had to go from, I couldn't do the cross coverage I wanted. Now I had to do one coverage, right? From one side of the car. And so now, and I learned this when we were doing this, the actors, the actors already known this because they had played, um, they had been on a lot of sets. You know, you got to give credit to actors, man. I mean, credit. The really good ones, they do this a lot and they know what to do. So when they played the scene, they played to this camera. So even though I'm side angle, they played this way, right? And so I covered, the camera covered their performance in a way where they knew the blocking, right? In the car. Now, the minute I said to them, I think we have time to go to the other side, they were like, whoa, 
Oh, we played for this camera. You switch, if now if we'd known you were going that way, look, we could have played it like this. She could have turned, but we thought it was gonna be one angle. You see, I was like, ah, oh, got it, got it. So we just stuck with the one shot. Yeah, I learned that, you know what I mean? On the set that day, I was like, okay. So actors, you know, they know, you know, but I always like to inform my actors anyway, this is the blocking, this is the shot, blah, blah, blah. But the minute I said, we're gonna switch it and go another way, they were like, but we played it this way for this camera. It looks beautiful for that camera. But if they had known we were going two cameras, guess what? They'd be turning like this, turning like that. Yeah. So, yeah. There's no, there's no, um, there's no getting around doing a first time feature. And I don't think, and, it, and listen, you can do a lot of preparation. But until you're on that set, until you're there the first day, um, I mean, it still becomes a first time feature experience. Yeah. Just be as prepared as you can be and surround yourself with good people. And we did that, you know, and Howard having done uh, this a number of times. I mean, I, sometimes I'd get to sit in the morning, I'm seeing Howard moving to Jenny. I mean, he's a hands-on producer too, so not as that. And he used to be an AD. So he was an AD in Canada for a lot of years before he became a producer. So uh, the last two days we lost our AD because he was sick. I mean, he just got, I think he had some kind of food poisoning or whatever, not from the set, but you know, he got sick. And so Howard had stepped in and guess what? Both days we, we managed to wrap before schedule, like an hour early, both days. And he was so efficient and on time. And it was just like, I was like, Howard, how did I, he said, hey man. <laughs> But he knows how to AD, you know, he knows how to run a set. And so I was blessed to have him as a producer on my first film. Can we talk about the time frame and the conversation that you had with Howard okay. about developing or redeveloping the script right. for Skin in the Game? Because right. he saw it, right. he said, I like it, but... Yeah, yeah. So Howard had liked it and he had, uh, uh, there was no commitment. There was no commitment that he was gonna make it. There was no, I mean, we were just doing the dance, if you will, you know? And at the time, because it was benefiting the script and because it was becoming better, I was like, okay, this, this works, you know what I mean? But I didn't know if he was gonna make it or not. I didn't know at the end of this journey. So I was still sort of, you know, still trying to find a way to do it independently. Like, if you will, like I was still trying to raise $100,000 here. I thought maybe we could have done it for $300,000, $200,000. I was like, okay, well maybe at one point I was thinking we can do it for $50,000. So I was like, cause I was just, you know, I was, yeah, I don't know if I was, I'm not gonna use, I don't wanna use the word desperate, but I wanted to make a movie. Like I wanted to make a movie, right? But you gotta be careful with that word desperation because that desperate causes you to rush a script into production. Being desperate causes you to uh, oversee, like over overlook certain things. Like the script may not mechanically work, or it may have problems. But you're like, oh God, I just got to make this movie. So desperate is not a place you want to be. You know, and you talked about being on set sometimes, and you just don't want to be that guy who's or girl woman who's on set being desperate. You want to be calm about the whole thing, right? And so I had peace of mind during the whole process, but I didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And so I was looking for other, at that time, probably you know, seeing how we could do it for hundred thousand dollars or whatnot. Um, and it was it was a year. I mean, you look up, but you know, a year goes by kind of fast. Like you're like, uh, wait a minute, three months have passed. You know, you do a rewrite, two months have passed. You give him a script, it takes him 
a month to read it. You know, then he gives you back, he calls you his notes, then he travels, he's, hey, how are, boom, he's, in a, he's at a Sundance Film Festival. You know, so then that month is down, and then he comes back, and then he has to gear up for this commercial thing. And so it's like, and I'm working, so it doesn't feel like a year, but a year goes by, right, before, before we make the movie. Yeah, and the script is constantly getting better, and it's constantly evolving, and we're constantly in communication and talking, you know, about, you know, you know, what it could look like, and yeah. So then sending him revisions, and then mm -hmm. he gives you notes? Yeah, I would send him revisions. He had a, he had a, a, a Mike Nell is, uh, is over there, he's a co-producer over there, and Mike would give us notes. I would go, sometimes I'd walk in, we'd sit down, we'd talk. They'd both give me notes. We could change this, what do we think about this? And it was never like dictatorial. You know, they would just be making like, like suggestions. You know, I think it would be better if we did this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, because Howard and his company, they really, I think they protect or they, they respect the vision of the filmmaker, right? So it wasn't like they were trying to change my vision at all. It was just so always about like, how do we make this a better house? This can be a better house. This can be a better, what if we add this? What if we take this away? You know, like uh, the ending was a, big, was a big thing for us, you know, because Sundance and usually independent film, usually like places like Sundance, they like darker endings, right? They like gritty endings. And so, you know, we played with the ending a lot. You know, but then I think there was, uh, who told me this? Yeah, one of my survivor women told me, don't make it uh, a dark ending, she told me. Even though the reality for most of these girls is they don't get out, right? A lot of them, truthfully, either succumb to drugs, you know, uh, they get worn out and they, uh, some of them die. You know, I mean, you know, the lifespan of a prostitute is only like seven years, yeah. And so, you know, or they OD. So it becomes, it's like a very grim experience. And so, but she told me, do not show the ending. So in our movie, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there was a point where the, hair, uh, the lead girl gets caught into the life and doesn't come back. But this person, the survivor told me, she said, don't do that because she says, the pimps will use it as a recruiting tool. And they'll use it to say, look, see, she couldn't get out. You see, see this movie? This is the truth, this is your reality, so don't even try. And that really, it really, it meant something to me, so I shared that with Howard and him too, you know, and uh, I think it, it impacted all of us, you know, in terms of the way we shaped the, the, the movie toward the end, yeah. Did anybody try to talk you out of making the movie in that they thought maybe you can't get distribution because of the subject matter? Distributors might be scared of it. Yeah, well, that's that, that's where Howard was key. But <laughs> I remember our, one of our first meetings, and he repeated this a lot. He said, "Listen, this can movie after we finish it. It can be a paperweight. It can uh, it can be an exercise in futility. It can sit up there on the bookshelf. There is just uh, you know um, you know just it's like just, just collecting dust, right? It may go nowhere." Right, he was very real. I mean, like I was like, I mean, you know, I mean, I was like, you know, like, because that wasn't my thinking, right, at all. But he had, again, he's an experienced producer and he's done this a number of times. And then when we met again, when we were getting ready to make the movie, he said, listen, this can either sit on the shelf, it can be a paperweight, <laughs> or it can be an exercise in futility. Like he said that exact same thing. And um, do you still want to do this, you know? And I said, yeah, you know. 
And but see, he had been to the other side of the mountain. He had been the journey before, so he knew. Right. So even now, as we get skin in the game out there to audiences and it's been a great journey, it's been a great journey. Right. Um, but we didn't get into Sundance. We didn't get into Tribeca. You know, we didn't get into Toronto. Uh, we didn't get into South by Southwest. We didn't get into any of the top tier festivals. Right. So that was a whole year because if you know anything about festivals, they want to premiere your film first, the top tier ones. If they don't get access to your film first, like say if you premiered at Chicago International Film Festival and then Sunday and said, okay, we want your movie. We want the exclusive rights to the premiere. And you're like, well, we already premiered it at Chicago. They're like, well, we don't want it. So that happens a lot. So you have to um, gauge it. And we had to go a whole like almost cycle year of trying to get into the big festivals. Then when we didn't get into the big festivals, then we could back up and say, okay, we didn't get into all the big ones, right? And why do you want the big ones? Because the distributors are there, because the buyers are there, because the national press is there, right? The attention is there. So you want to hold out for those festivals. But when you don't get it, then you say, okay, now what are the second tier festivals? And uh, so then we were fortunate. I mean, we were fortunate in the sense that we premiered at Urban World in New York in September, which is a great festival. You know, we had a great premiere there. Then we went up to uh, Whistler Film Festival in Canada. And then we ended with the uh, Pan African Film Festival and we won Best Director. Best first feature film. Right. So yeah, it was. Uh, it's been a journey. But to your point about Howard talking about the paperweight, but now we're in the process of distributing it, right? And distributing it is almost as hard as making it. Like when you ask yourself, what is the hardest part? Writing the script, making it, or distributing it? I'm almost like, well, distributing it is hard as hell because now you got to get it out there to people. People have to see it. You want people to see it. And so, um, yeah, it takes, it's, it's, and we're an indie film, so it's like, choo -choo 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 -choo. yes, you can, yes, you can, choo -choo 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 -choo. you know, so. Plus, it's not as sexy to be distributing it. Yeah, yeah. It, you, when you're on set, oh, yeah. uh, you're, you're uh, even though there's oh, stressful moments. And then you made another point about the subject matter. So, so Howard was also very clear, this is, this is not a popular subject matter, or a lot of people don't want to see that. Kind of thing. It's in the shadows, right? And so even my wife, for instance, never read the script. Even when we finished the film, she never saw it. And she was actually, when I was writing the script, she's like, how can you write that? How can you, you know, I mean, it, it created something for her in terms of just the subject matter. And we had two little girls. So it was, and I understand it, right? And so I knew, just translating from that to what Howard was saying, it's not going to be an easy sell. And, you know, for whatever reason, people are not going to just be, it didn't matter how good the film is, just, just going to be drawn to the subject. But I would say, I'm willing to roll the dice. In spite of all that, he said, let's roll the dice. Knowing what he knew as a businessman, he said, let's roll the dice. Yeah. It seems like you're attracted or you're willing to explore dark subject matter and, and know that a lot of people may not want to see, they may know about young children working in yeah. mines and mm -hmm. it's horrible, but I, do I really want to spend years? Right. Why do you think you're willing to go there? Well, because as much as you talk about the dark subject matter and the darkness of the, uh, why do I go there? I'm an optimist. And so I like to see the light in the darkness. You know, and sometimes I think the light is in the darkness, right? And so, I'm gonna go there because I'm still fighting for the hope and the possibility, right? So 
I'm never going to tell a story where it's just dark, right? And then at the ending, it's it's like unconscionable, and you know, I'm always going to there's going to be a spin on it, right? Or there's going to be a um, a take on it. So in the Diamond Mine thing, you know, we got the kids out of the mines, we, you know, we funded them in soccer and we put them in schools. So that was like there was there was something that came out of that, right? And so with the girls, it was important for me to tell the subject matter, but it was also important to tell that one story of possibility and hope. You know, the girl that made it, the girl that did get out. And so we can cling on to that, you know. So I'm not afraid of the darkness, but you know, for me, it, there has to be that, um, that thing where I'm not gonna just live in there, just, you know, wallow in it. Yeah, there's, there's got to be some, um, some hope some possibility. So I'm always fighting for the possibility and the hope. Has anyone just said, well, make a, a romantic comedy, why don't, oh, yeah. why don't you know, oh, it's yeah. just, it's an easier sell or what? Oh yeah. And, and oh, yeah. If, if your heart's not in it, how do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've gotten that, um, you know, just do a romantic comedy, just do a light uh, drama, um, which I probably will do one day. But um, that's not who I am. You know, it's just not not who I am in terms of that. Uh, yeah, in terms of developing material, in terms of my interests right now, in terms of what I'm excited about. Yeah, but I hope to, you know, I hope to lighten it up, do a romantic comedy one day, do, do a comedy. But just right now, it's, this is just, you know, this is where my interest is. This is what, I, what draws me. So is your sort of approach to filmmaking similar to life where you just kind of tell it like it is? And has that worked for you, or yeah. has it ever rubbed people the wrong way? It's interesting that you should mention that. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that, actually, because uh, there's two school of thoughts, and I've heard uh, Gina Prince Blythewith, uh, the director of Love and Basketball and uh, Disappearing Acts, uh, she talks about this as a writer and director. She said, um, you can tell it like it is, right? Like you can exactly replicate life, and this, this is what it is, and if it's bad, it's bad, if it's, if it's uh, you know, dark, it's dark, and just, I'm just gonna show you like it is. And she says, but she prefers to tell a story that is how it could be, opposed to just what it is. And I subscribe to that. You know, I don't mind showing it like it is, but I also want it to be like, this is how it could be. Mm -hmm. And you think that's from your parents, because they were willing to, to help some of the other kids and, and you know, they were always sort of this foundation for you? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it goes back to my parents because um, I lived, I mean, I lived in a realm of possibility. You can do this. My mother always said, you can do this. And she always supported me in whatever I did. If I wanted to be a filmmaker, she said, you can be a filmmaker. If I wanted to be, go to NYU, she said, you can go to NYU. Uh, so she's always been in my corner. Even when sometimes she's like, uh, well, I wasn't a sound man. Well, you, need to, you need to join the union. You know, you need to be in the union. You know, you need the foundation. You need security. I was like, oh, mom, you know, I need to, I need to stay loose. I need to be, <laughs> you know, I can't be like in the union because then that means I'm a sound man. I can't be too much like, a, I can't be considered that. And even though I'm in the union now, right? But, uh, I, or I became in the union at one point. But I was like, no, nah, I need to stay loose. And so, um, but they've been, they've always created the, the, a level They've always supported me in a way where I could create possibility. And so I think, yeah, it filters down into my work where I don't just want to show what is, but I also want to show what's possible.
Was the first day on set for Skin in the Game more emotional than any of the short films that you had reported to or done on your own? Yeah, I think uh, you talk about the first day, but I, I got to tell you, it was probably two periods where I cried. I just couldn't believe this was happening. I mean, like that kind of cry. Like I was, uh, I was very grateful of having had the experience. I had a moment, you know, usually when you're shooting a film, there's no moments to do anything but like, let's keep marching ahead, let's keep marching ahead. And once you get that ball rolling, it's like, you're rolling. Next day, second day, third, you know, so it's like, but there was, there were two days where I probably paused and I just, some tears came to my eyes because I was just so overwhelmed with the fact that this was happening. And I was grateful and it was, it was sort of victorious for me in a way that all this 15 year journey was culminating into this, you know. And then what happens too is you've been told no so many times that, you know, you get beat down by the no. And so that when the yes happens, sometimes there's a disbelief like, is this really happening? Is this really happening? And so it took a moment to sink in that this is really happening and I'm really directing my first feature. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did, did, it, did it get in your head at all, like mess with you a little bit? Or then once the train was going, you were just well, like- Well, you know, you the thing is, that's the thing about it. Once the train is moving, it's moving and you're the leader. And um, the day, the day, or the actors, or the shots that you choose, it it rises or falls with you. So you just have to embrace that, and I, I embraced that pretty fast. Like, it just I didn't have too much time to sit back and be like, ooh ah, you know. I had to get into into director mode, you know, and that meant efficiency. That meant you know having the actors believe in me and have confidence in me as a director. So that meant coming prepared. And, you know, I like to work with my actors, you know, so I like to, you know, sit time to rehearse. Even though we had limited rehearsal up top, up, up front of the film, like maybe one or two days, which wasn't a great, and I didn't get a chance to rehearse with all of them. I always liked it before the scenes. You know, I would go into the trailers and say, let's talk through this scene. Let's work it out. You know, let's work it out. And I always, because of the, the, um, the work I did with Brad Barnes, who, who works at the uh, Directing Actors Workshop, he never let the actors rehearse alone. So I take that into my practice too. He said, because what happens is, and I've seen it, actors will end up creating motivations and objectives for themselves without you, right? As they work alone. And then inevitably one actor may end up directing the scene. Like one actor may take charge. So then that may create some division on set where one actor feels, you know, like superior than another. So he wants to eliminate that. And he wants to eliminate the fact that when you work, to, when the actors work up front, on the scene together, they've locked it. So then when they come to set and it's locked, and you look at it and you're like, oh no, that's not it. That's not it, you know, so. It may be good for them, but it may not serve you as a storyteller, as a director for the overall picture, you know, or maybe not even for that particular scene. So I don't like them to work together beforehand. They can run lines, but that's it. But don't start sitting there talking about, okay, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna uh, no, do that. Let the director come in and do that and shape the scene. What are the biggest lessons making this film has taught you? Wow, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, well, you know, it's always it's always difficult to look back on your work and talk about what you could have did or what you should have did. Uh, but there there were some different choices I would have probably made with the script. Looking back on it now, I don't want to get too specific about that because I want people to enjoy the movie. 
and I don't want to talk about maybe if this was five years and the movie was removed, then we could talk about it. But now it's so fresh. I don't want people to go into the movie and be thinking, oh, this, that, and the other. But there are probably some different choices um, I could have made script-wise. Um, an- another big lesson is trust your gut. Yeah, trust your gut. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And, I, and that just goes down to hiring crew, uh, when you're on set making decisions around shots, you know, because sometimes what happens on a film set, people, you know, everybody's there to make the film, right? And everybody's there to uh, have, have a good experience in making it. But for some of us, at the end of the day, they just want to go home, right? And also their level of investment, sometimes they're just like, you know, they just, if you say we're going to wrap at 12, they're like, oh, let's go home. You know what I mean? And so you, you may get one shot in the scene and say, let's wrap it 12. So just to really trust yourself and you got to hold to your guns. And sometimes that means being, um, no, we don't have it. You know, we got to, we, we need to, we got to keep working and we got to keep, and I did that a few times with the scene because I'm not one to shoot a bad scene. And so if the scene is not working and I've done that, I had to shut the scene, I had to shut the, the set down. One time we were at Duco's house and um, the dialogue wasn't working. We put the scene up. And it was not working. And I could tell, sometimes you can tell if it's the dialogue or if it's the actor's delivery or it's the scene itself that's lacking something, right, in terms of um, a point of view. But the dialogue wasn't working. It was just not working. Because when, when Steve had wrote it and I worked with him on, you know, in terms of the direction of the script, it was, it was slow. But then when we shot it, it was an act, it was, it was an action. But Duco had held a gun up. It moved fast. The scene was moving really fast. So all the words that he was saying and that she was saying back, it just didn't work, right? And so I had to shut down the scene and I told everybody, take five, take 10 minutes. You know, just take 10 minutes. And we're under the clock. We're constantly under the clock because we're shooting, right? And so you want to do these kind of things beforehand, but we didn't have a chance to rehearse this ahead of time. So I had to kind of rehearse it on set. And then when we played the scene, I was like, this isn't working. And the actors knew it wasn't working. See, that's the... That's, that's, the, that's sort of the best part about it, too, is that actors know it's not working, right? And they're seeing if, if you know it's not working. And so if it's not working, you got to fix it. So I pulled everybody off set. We went into another room. And I started to rewrite the scene right then and there. Okay, boom, that works. Boom, that works. Okay, boom, no, take that away. Run it again. Boom, that doesn't work. Okay, say this. Okay, boom, let's put you here. All right. You know, and the actors have already done their work. Focus intention, what I want from the scene, the objective. They've done that, right? So, but then it may be honing that objective more, right? Or it may mean in this case, we gotta, you don't, we, we don't need you to say nothing. Just feel it and it registers, right? And so we did that and then when I put the scene up, magic. It was magic. I think the actors were proud of it. I was proud of it. I mean, and the crew was, because the crew was proud too, because ultimately nobody wants to shoot Garbage, you know what I mean? Like they don't. I mean, you, you can put people in front of the camera, you can put a director there, but if you're shooting it, I've been on enough sets too, where if it's just bad, it's like uh, it's bad. You know, we don't want to shoot that. It doesn't do anything for anybody. So, but I, you know, so I learned to, you know, I learned to trust myself in those situations. I learned to trust myself, um, and then do what it do what it takes to to make the scene work.